good worship this morning. Good job, y'all. Listen, I, 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 and I'll speak on behalf of Stevie. When, when you just can step back and like this and everybody just keeps singing like a big worship concert here, you guys, it's just inspiring and inspires me and y'all just did a phenomenal job. Great job singing this morning. And um, sometimes you run into a song like the one we just did, which I love, by the way, and uh, you're going, okay, it's new, I don't know it. I feel like I'm a little, like I'm kind of at a concert right now. That's okay. You just, you know what you do? You just step back and you listen to words and you just soak them in and you just worship that way. Some of you are real musical. You can pick it up. Some of you aren't musical. You'll never pick it up, but that's okay. You just, you just let the words soak into your heart and you worship and you just allow, you don't have to be singing or know a song to have a worship moment, right? And so you just let God minister and, and you just think about the words and what God, those words mean to you and let them soak into your heart. Hey, I want to tell you about something before we jump in. Um, as you know, uh, several months ago, we announced that our current worship pastor, who was just standing where I am a few moments ago, Stevie Flockhart, is going to be moving to uh, East Cobb to start a brand new church sometime in the next year or so, or however long uh, God allows it, that to happen. But, um, and he's going to be starting Mosaic Church in East Cobb. And so uh, right away, as soon as Stevie told us about that, we began kind of the search for a new worship pastor. And we didn't make it real public outside of doing what we're, you know, here the stage. But word spreads, and so we got a lot of resumes and different people that we looked at, and there were some people we were really interested in, some people uh, we were not at all. And, um, but uh, right after rush camp, something very interesting happened. Um, one of our own homegrown boys who had left here five years ago to plant a church in Orlando, Florida with Tim Grandstaff threw his name into the ring. And uh, so through a lot of of talking, uh, not only with Tim, but with this individual um, and, and bringing him in, letting him lead worship, and then meeting with our elders and some of our elders and staff and going through the whole deal. Uh, we have made a hire uh, to be, we have a new worship pastor hire. Jason Chandler's coming back home. So... Sometime in September, uh, you're going to see a little handoff between Stevie and Jason, and it's going to be fun, because Stevie's still going to be with us as our church planning uh, resident, and uh, Jason will be moving here. They actually put their house in the market and sold it within 48 hours, got everything that they were asking for, so you know God's in it. And, <laughs> but uh, Jason, uh, his family moved here when he was in ninth grade. We watched him come through our student ministry, and just God used him, and to, to learn how to lead worship and led us in worship many times. And then married Rachel, who is a graduate of Harrison High School, and he's a graduate of East Pauling, and they had little Brindley. And so uh, they will be back here in September. So it's always fun to watch one of your own kids, spiritual kids, leave. And, uh, you know, I, I've kind of likened it to LeBron going down to Miami and uh, getting a little education, getting a little better, and he comes back, all right? And that's so, anyways. All right. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Who's, who's LeBron? You need to turn on the news. Okay. All right. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that um, it's, it's December 2009, and you feel called by God to leave your country, which is Australia, and you feel called to be a missionary to the United States. And so you sell everything that you have, and, uh, but everything that you, know, that you, that you keep, you, you can pack into about 10 suitcases, and you and your wife and your three young boys get on a plane and you cross over the ocean and 
you land in the windy city of Chicago in the middle of December, never having been there before, never having seen your house before, and you begin to work at a new church with people that you really didn't know very well, but you know that God has called you to be here. And you are so excited, your kids are excited, your wife is excited, and, 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 and you, but you're, you're ready to embark on this, this brand new journey. And then all of a sudden, in less than a month, you get news that your seven-year-old son has leukemia. And it's not um, just a, hey, you know, quick, you know, couple rounds of chemo. This goes on for three and a half years of chemo. Over 7,000 tablets, hundreds of spinal taps. Your, his liver shuts down in the process once. He loses his hair twice. He, he has to take steroids, which, which causes him to be extremely angry and, and causes him to go into fits of rage and deep depression and discouragement. And you go through that as you are ministering to people and as you are being a missionary to churches in the United States and helping them to help people in the churches to get on mission. And, and then all of a sudden, March 2013, you get news from his doctor that he's been healed. His cancer's gone. He's gone into remission. And, and so you just begin to celebrate and, and a group comes along and, and gifts you and your whole family to go to Disney World in Orlando and you've never been there before. And so you're celebrating your son's uh, being cancer-free and then while you're there, you begin to feel ill yourself. And you're still having to travel and speak and this and that. And, and all of a sudden, November comes around you can't even hardly get out of bed. December, Christmas, you spend basically in bed, you know, just, you, you can't even walk down the stairs to, to come to dinner. And on January 4th, you, an ambulance shows up at your house, and you are rushed to the hospital, and after several tests, the doctor walks in, and he says, you have a very rare form of leukemia called APL. It's a, a rare blood disease, and, and it doesn't look good. You, send, you spend six weeks in, uh, in the cancer isolation center, and you spend the last eight months in chemo treatment, two weeks on, two weeks off, over 1,960 tablets you have to take, and just your future looks bleak. But to God's glory, you find out the very first week of August that you beat cancer. You've been healed. And that's the story of one of our staff members, Kim Hammond. God has given him victory. That's his family right there. His son Carter in the middle, who is a cancer survivor. Kim, who is probably the most joyful man I've ever met in my life. And uh, this past week, our elders and lead staff got a chance to go up to Chicago and we presented Kim. He just turned 40 a couple weeks ago. We gave him a brand new pair of old school authentic Air Jordans because he's a huge Chicago Bulls fan. Loves Michael Jordan. I don't hold any of that against him. But... um, I mean, it was like we had just given him another trip to Disney World, him holding these Air Jordans. And then our staff came around, and lead team and elders, we came around and we prayed a prayer of commissioning over him. And uh, it was such an amazing moment as now they're getting ready to leave once again in October. Uh, They're going to be spending October to January in in Scotland, and they're going to be back in Australia on January 10th. Last night as I was talking to Kim on the phone and just kind of getting more of these details, here's what he said to me. He said, Brian, I've got to tell you, no regrets. I wouldn't trade the last five and a half years for anything. He said, it's an amazing thing, but all I have in my heart is nothing but love. 
And as I was talking to him, I was reminded of a quote that I read several years ago when I was in seminary that kind of struck me as odd. It was from an author by the name of A.W. Tozier who wrote a great book called The Pursuit of God. And he said this, he said, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And I want to tell you something, in all of my life, I have never seen a couple or a family go through so much and yet handle it the way Kim and Maria Hammond handled the last five and a half years of their life. I mean, I, I will tell you, we've walked through the last three and a half with them, and it has not been easy. It has not been easy. But as I've watched God just allow Kim and Maria and their children to go through the most difficult season of their lives, I've never seen a greater example of what I want to talk to you about this morning. I've never seen a couple more prepared to go back into what we would call a post-Christian place like Scotland and even more so than Australia. Now, for those of you who are just jumping into our study this morning, maybe you've been gone all summer or this is your first time at Westridge. We've been in the book of 1 Peter all summer, and this book is a book about hope. It's a book about finding hope in the midst of persecution and trials and suffering. And what do you do when you feel attacked and you feel like the world's coming against you or you're going through something and you don't have answers, you just don't know what to do. It's a book written to a group of Christians that have been pushed out of Jerusalem and now they're living as what the Bible describes as strangers in a land, exiles in a foreign land. And these are people that are not just dealing with persecution. They're living in a, in a very sinful, worldly, tough culture. And we talked about the culture that they were living in last week. How do you survive? How do you live for God in a godless culture? And as Paul is writing to them, he's writing to give them hope. He's writing to encourage them. He's writing to, to speak courage into their lives. He's writing them to, to them to remind them that what they're going through is just temporary. This wasn't their home. Heaven was their home. But maybe more than anything, I think what Peter is saying as he writes this letter to these strangers, these foreigners, these exiles, but believers, he's saying, listen, here's how you're to act when you are struggling. Here's how you are to act when you're being persecuted. Here's how you're to act when others are coming against you. Here's how you're, at, how you're to act when you're going through a trial, when you, when you feel like giving up. Here's what you do when you don't know what to do. Now, in verse 7, I want to read the very first line that Peter gives to these people. He says this, the end of all things is at hand. And I want to stop there for a moment because it's so important. I, I think we just need to camp there for just a second. I, Peter, once again, adds this sense of urgency to what he's saying to these folks. And quite honestly, it's just a straightforward reminder to just not them, but to, all, but to us as well, that time is precious. We don't have a lot of it. And it's and, and, and what you do with it, even when you're suffering or when you're struggling or, or when, when you don't know what to do, it, what you do with that time is extremely important. When you don't know what to do in, in the midst of your struggling and, and your pain, here, here's what you don't do. You don't allow yourself to be paralyzed by those circumstances. You don't allow yourself to, to, be, to be crippled by fear and doubt. You, you don't sit around and mope or have a pity party. And and as I said this many times before, I want to say it again this morning, God never wastes our suffering. He never wastes our trial. He never wastes our moments of pain. And so Peter says, listen, the end of time of all things is at hand. And then he says this, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minding for the sake of your prayers. What do you do when you don't know what to do? You be smart, you stay calm, and you just keep praying. That's what you do. 
Now, what do a lot of people do when they face a big, you know, a tough, difficult situation? Well, a lot of times they either panic and they make a bad decision that ends up with bad consequences, or they just do nothing and they become paralyzed, which also has its set of consequences. But Peter says, be self-controlled. Be, very simply, he says, chill out. Stay cool. Don't panic. Face your situation realistically. Don't, you don't have to, you know, put a fluffy little bow around it. I mean, it, it's what it is. But step back and realize God's in control here. Now, when Paul uses the word sober, I know most of the time we think of, of the opposite of, of drunkenness, but that... But Peter's not talking about drinking here, although I think it is a very good idea when you're facing a tough moment not to get drunk, okay? Matter of fact, it's a good moment not to get drunk at any time. But instead, what he's saying is here, what he's saying here, when you go through a tough time, don't go to extremes. Don't allow yourself to be filled with anxiety. Don't do something drastic. Don't make a quick, rash life-altering decision in the midst of your conflict, in the midst of your confusion, in the midst of your suffering. Don't, don't do that. Now, whenever I'm counseling somebody who has just had someone die that, that, that maybe they're close to, what I always tell them is, listen, don't, don't make a huge life-altering decision right now. Instead, just step back, let God minister to you, rest your mind, and find peace in your relationship with God. And I love what, Paul, what Peter says to these, he said, to these people. He says, be self-controlled, be sober-minded. Why? So you can pray. Now, have you ever just had your mind in such a frenzy, I mean, that you just couldn't pray? I mean, you, you just, you couldn't say anything. You didn't even know what to say. It was your mind was just, like, just racing. And yet Peter says, stay self-controlled, stay cool, stay calm, chill out, relax. Don't let your mind go to a bad place don't do something extreme. Why? So you can pray. Nothing helps us more, and nothing helps us more during a difficult time than prayer. Nothing helps us more to find peace in our hearts than prayer. Nothing helps bring light and direction to a paralyzing situation better than prayer. And over my life, um, I have known a few people that in the church world we would call prayer warriors. Some of you have met some of those people before. They're just people that get it when it comes to the issue of prayer. They just, they, it's, you, it's very evident when you hear them pray. pray th- th- these people just know how to pray. And from my observation, uh, one of the characteristics that I think always defines a prayer warrior is peace and faith. There's just this sense about them that regardless of what happens, there's peace. And regardless of how tough the situation gets, they have faith that they're going to make it through. And, and in, in my life right now, there's one person that I can think of that I say, this is my prayer warrior. I, soaking wet, he's about 130 pounds. He's from Nigeria, and he's, his name's Ralph Ugo. And many of you have met him before. He lives outside of D.C., but he spent many years here. But when, I, when, I'm, when I'm going through a tough time and I'm paralyzed, I mean, my mind's in a frenzy, I call Ralph and sometimes, you know, his Nigerian accent's so thick, I have to go, what did you just say? But he just, I say, Ralph, here's what's going on. And then he begins to pray. And sometimes I have to say, Ralph, I only got about 10 minutes here because he, he can pray for 20, 30 minutes without blinking. And you are literally in the presence of God. It's like you're at the throne room of God. And I mean, it's amazing. But when I see a person who's an emotional roller coaster, always on the edge of extremes, constantly discouraged, usually... I'm looking at a person who's not spending time in prayer. 
Prayer calms your spirit. Prayer helps you to realize God is in control. Prayer empowers you to use wise judgment. It helps us to keep things in perspective. Prayer uh, strengthens our faith. And so at the very top here, Peter says, be smart, stay cool, so you can pray. Then he says, stay genuine and intense in your love towards one another. He says in verse 8, above all things, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Earnestly speaks of of an intensity and it speaks of of a determination. Some of your Bibles use the word fervent. Be genuine, be authentic, be legit. The Greek word actually means here to strain. It's used to describe uh, an athlete who is trying desperately to reach a finish line or or a goal line. He's he's trying to to clear a hurdle or a bar or something like that. When you see someone do that, they're they're straining. Whenever you watch a runner go into a a sprint, like let's say a 100-yard dash, when they get to the finish line, what, what does that line of runners do? They reach out, they strain for the finish line. Sometimes they strain so hard and push so hard, they fall down. You ever watched a great running back? I mean, it would be on the one-yard line. They give him the ball, he just leaps in the air, and he can, he can jump over these gigantic defenders. And usually when he does that, he's, reaching the, he's got the football out in front of him, and he is straining, he's stretching out for the goal line. And Paul's using the same terminology to describe love. We need to have the same kind of genuine intensity when it comes to loving other people. Oftentimes when people go through challenges or struggles or difficult times, what what do they do? Well, they get angry. They start looking for for someone to blame. They got to find somebody to take their anger out on. They, They begin to lash out at people or they spiral inward. And they allow themselves to be consumed. They allow their troubles to consume them and overwhelm them. And when you get to that kind of place, what's the last thing on your mind? When you get to the place like that, whether it's one extreme or the other, the last thing on your mind is loving other people. Man, I'm really struggling right now. I think I'm going to go love on some folks. I mean, that, that, we struggle with that. And yet Peter says if there was ever a time where we needed to be loving, if there was ever a time when we needed to extend love, if there was ever a time where we need to draw close to others, it's when you're suffering. It's when you're struggling. It's when someone is attacking you. I think we're in a season like that right now as the church. Not talking about this church. I'm talking about the big C, the church in general, the Christian church. We talked about the culture last week. How do you live for God in a godless culture? And I think if there was ever a time when the church needs to draw together, it's right now. Listen, don't, don't play into the hands of the enemy. Don't waste your time criticizing other Christians. It's a waste of time. Don't spend time church bashing. Instead, spend time building up one another. Peter says, be genuine in your love for one another. Be, love others with intensity. Peter says, above all, more than anything else, love other people. Now, as you know, as a church, we, we do some work in Cuba. And it's probably one of my favorite countries to go to because you're, you're around a group of Christians who are in the midst of persecution, they're in the midst of suffering, they're in the midst of having basically nothing. They make about $15 a month. And yet I am just, I, whenever I'm with them, and I was with them in April, I'm just overwhelmed by their love. 
I'm overwhelmed by their joy. I'm overwhelmed by this, this sense of peace that they have. And, and especially not just towards each other, but towards me and towards the, the, the people that I go with. It's just this genuine, intense, fervent love. And I want to tell you something, it's contagious. And these are people who are going through extreme persecution. I spend some time with pastors who, when I get there, the, the day before, they have just gotten out of prison, out of jail. As I look at the world around me and we look at the world around us, listen, this is a time for the church to shine. This is a time for us to put our love for each other on display. Now look at the end of verse 8, because Peter says something that you probably have heard before. He says this, he says, love covers what? A multitude of sins. Have you ever really thought about what that phrase means? Well, Peter's saying that the thing that really reveals the kind of love that we need to have towards each other, the kind of more than anything else is forgiveness. When Peter says love covers a multitude of sins, he's alluding to a principle in Proverbs 10, 12, which says hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all, offensive, all offenses. Now, I don't think that there, is, there is, is anything that is more a more compelling witness towards a lost culture than when Christians show love and unity towards one another. When we truly extend forgiveness to other people that may may not deserve it on the other hand there's nothing more disruptive and destructive to the cause of christ and the unity of the church when christians are attacking each other when we're going after each other when we're stirring up disunity i mean i'm telling you nothing is is a poorer witness and listen do not think for a moment that the unsaved world does not watch how we treat one another how we how christians treat each other when we bash our brothers and sisters or we bash the church they take note of that brennan manning in his book lion and lamb tells a story about a time when the indian religious leader gandhi was talking about christianity someone was sharing christianity with him and and he, and, and manning writes this Gandhi said at this moment, he said, listen, he said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians because they're so unlike your Christ. I remember the first time that I heard that, read that, I thought, that is so sad. Here's this influential religious leader in India who is basically saying, I, I like your Christ, I get it. I, when I see him, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. They're so unlike your Christ. And yet, when we look at Scripture, I think there are probably two words more than anything else that define the life of Christ. Love and forgiveness. Now, listen, every person in this room, you could probably, if you could, just wanted to, you could blame someone for something bad that has happened in your life. Every adult in this room probably has someone in your past that you could hold a grudge against. I I know I do. You actually could hold that grudge and you could, you could allow it to, 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 to turn into bitterness and you could allow it to bury it. You could actually allow it, if you wanted to, to define you and even control your life. And in this, in this sense of urgency that, is, that Peter's writing, he said, listen, don't waste your time. Time is too short for this. You just got a little bit of time here. The time you were born, the dash, and the time you die, don't waste your time. And the kind of love that Peter is encouraging us to have towards one another is this earnest love. It's a love that's willing to forgive. It's a love that, that, that is willing to move beyond hurt, that refuses to take offense, it refuses to hold grudges. And I want to tell you something. It's hard to do, isn't it? I can think back to high school, to words that coaches said to me that 
If I allowed it to, it could hurt me, still hurt me. I can think of relationships that I had that if I allowed my mind to go there, there's still hurt there if I wanted it to be there. I could think of things that are happening right now. If I allowed my mind to go to it, they're still, they're, they're, it's still painful. Like I, could, I could let it define me. I could let bitterness begin to build up inside of me. But you know what? Here's what I've learned. Forgiveness empowers your future. Unforgiveness empowers your past. In this world of ours, listen, I, listen there's just some folks that are just really tough to love. And there, there are some folks that, I mean, honestly, it just takes effort. I mean, they just rub you the wrong way. They're abrasive. They're irritating. They are just a challenge. And oftentimes, those are the people that need our love the most. And Peter uses this word strain. <laughs> and I think part of it is because there are just people that you have to strain to love. It's a stretch. But he says that's how we're to love, especially when we're going through tough times. And then he says, be hospitable towards one another without complaining. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, if you have your Bible open, you have a pen, pencil, whatever it is, I want you to circle the words one another. Peter uses those same words in verse 8 and verse 10. In other words, and, and what he's saying is we need to be hospitable even to the people that we might find to be challenging, unlovable, or even tough to be around. And then Peter throws in this little kicker that really irritates me. He says, do it without grumbling. Do it without complaining. I don't know, that just kicks my tail. I'm just going to be honest with you. Now, we're going to have just a little moment here. This is what we call true confessions of a senior pastor. As most of you know, I'm, I'm a very outgoing person. If you, if you know anything about the Myers-Briggs test, I'm an ENFP, which is probably the most outgoing of the extrovert personalities. I'm a people person, but over the years, and I think part of it's just doing what I do for so many years and so long, it, my house has become somewhat of my refuge. And again, the older I get, the more I do what I do. I, I've just really learned to just, I love being in my house with my family. And I've said, you know, and, 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 and I say all this to basically say that sometimes, here we go, I'm not the most hospitable person in the world. Now, the challenge with that is as a pastor, I am, I am called to be hospitable. So it's a struggle. But before you look down on me and before you go, okay, I need to find another church, I, I think there's a little bit more to the story because, I, and, I, and I got my wife's permission to share this before I, um, actually I called her this morning and I said, I need to read this to you um, before we entertain, usually a large group, and especially when family comes in, my wife's family, um, normally it involves a project. When we first got married, and my wife really didn't know this about me, that I'm basically completely inept when it comes to tools, um, we, she said, wouldn't it be great if we could cook out tonight? We were inviting this couple over for dinner, and she said, what if we grilled out? And we'd been saving money for a grill, so I said, that'd be cool. So we went to Home Depot, and, and, and rather than buy the floor model, which... I know always to do now. Um, we bought the box and we brought it home and in the middle of our living room with my little set of tools, I'm trying to put this grill together. Well, hours later, the couple shows up and now they're helping me put the grill together and, and I didn't realize you need actually to have gas in the tank and so we ended up ordering Chinese. Um, there was another time, uh, somewhere a couple years ago, my wife decided to have all the staff wives over and she said, it, I would really like to have the dining room painted right now. So I'm painting the dining room. 
and it's, they show up. And I mean, I'm like, okay, don't touch the walls. <laughs> You're going to have burgundy all over your, 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 your nice shirt. I mean, so there's a little bit more to my issue than just being a hosp- hospitable snob. I just need you to know that, okay? But while I'm being honest up here, I want you to think for a moment and ask yourself, when was the last time you just brought someone into your house and just showed them hospitality? When was, when was the last time you just brought someone into your home that was maybe outside of your little normal group of close friends and family and, and maybe you extended grace and love to them because they just needed it? And, you know, we do this thing called Hope for Christmas at this church and I love what, what we do. Uh, over the last couple of years, we've, we've, we've come up with a strategy when, when, when families come through the door over here and, and we, 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 we get them right over here and then we hook them up with a host couple and then we take them through the whole Hope for Christmas experience. And what if we, instead of walking through them through the experience and then taking them to their car and hugging them and saying goodbye, what if we invited them over for dinner? What if we had them to our house at Christmas time? What if you invited someone totally outside of the realm of your little friendship world? What if you invited someone to Thanksgiving that did not have a place to go? What if you grabbed someone on the street, a homeless person, and I mean, you got to know a little bit, obviously, and you said, hey, come to my house. I want to to fix you a meal. Let me take hospitality a little further. Do do you make time in your life just to be interrupted every once in a while? Are you willing to blow up your schedule for a stranger or for someone outside your, your circle that just needs to be loved on? This is, this is something that I hear a lot. I mean, someone may be down on their luck or they're, maybe they're on the streets or they're homeless or whatever it is, and, and I'll hear someone say, you know, that, that's the consequence of bad decisions. Kids, when you drop out of school, that's what happens to you. There's a reason that that person is out on the streets. And, and you know what? There's probably some truth to that. But Peter challenges us to love one another. He says, true love covers a multitude of sins. He says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling, without complaining. And it's interesting to me that that this is all God's antidote. This is his antidote to helping a group of people that were suffering, that were being persecuted, that were strangers in a foreign land. God is literally saying, instead of focusing all of your attention on your suffering, on your pain, on your issues, on your persecutors, on the people that are attacking you, focus your life on others. And then he says something else. Number four, he says, keep using your gifts to serve one another. He says in verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplied. Now, if you're not aware of this, at the moment that you, that you receive Jesus Christ to be your personal savior, you were given by the Holy Spirit what is called a spiritual gift. Some of you have more than one. And there are several places in the New Testament where the spiritual gifts are not only talked about, but they're actually described. Ephesians 4, verse 11 through 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 30, Romans 12, 6 through 8. And you can, so if you don't know what they are, you can go there, you can see them. When you become a member of, a partner with us here at Westridge in ministry, you take a spiritual gift test and we want to help you to to find out what your gift is so we can get you plugged into where you need to be as, as a servant. If you don't know what your gift is, I mean, either take the test or better yet, find someone around you that knows you extremely well and say, when you read through this, this list right here, what, what do you see in me? 
What empowers you? When you're doing that thing, whether it's serving or teaching or whatever it is, I mean, you're just like energized. You're, you're, you're ignited. But regardless of your spiritual gift, here's the thing. They were all given to us for the exact same purpose, to serve other people. The gifts that we've been given by God are given to us to build up the church and to edify the body of Christ, which is the church. The gifts are never, ever, ever to be wasted to build ourselves up or, or, or to make a name for ourselves. That's called abusing the gifts of the Spirit. So how do I avoid abusing the gifts? Well, never try to do them in your own strength. Never use them to tear someone else down. Let me tell you a sure sign that someone's abusing their gift. That they brag about their gift. It's all you hear about. They just talk about it all the time. Or, or they use their gift to promote themselves, or, the, or they use it to tear other people down. Listen, that's a scary place to put yourself in. When you take a gift that's not yours, given to you out of grace, and you use it to do the complete opposite of why it was given to you. When God gives you a spiritual gift, and for some of you it's more than one, it was given to you out of grace. Therefore, it is only truly effective when it's used in God's strength and power. It's only given to build up and to edify the church. It's only been given to you to serve other people. Now, let me tell you why this command is so important and why, why I believe Peter includes it here. Because when you're down and out and when you're suffering or you're struggling or someone is attacking you or you feel like you're at a place where you're just paralyzed in life and you don't know what to do next, God gives us the antidote. Get your mind off yourself and get it onto other people. Get it, on, get it on serving others. Because when you serve others, what happens? You take your mind off of your own problems and you focus on others. And sometimes you realize in the midst of that that other people actually have it worse than you do. And it just makes you want to, it just makes you feel better to, 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 to even serve them. And it, makes, it makes your problem seem so small. Other people are encouraged. We, we help people gain a fresh hope. And, and guess who benefits the most? Usually us. I, I, every time I go on a missions trip, every time I go downtown to, to, to help people, I'm telling you what, I come back more blessed than, than I was a blessing to them every single time. Now, here's the challenge. And trust me, I'm going to tell you, this, this is a challenge. And some of you are going to say, Brian, listen, when I'm struggling and I'm suffering or I'm paralyzed with a problem or someone has hurt me or, or I've been attacked, the very last thing I want to do is to stay cool, chill out, be calm and pray. I got words. I'm going to say those words. <laughs> or the last thing that I want to do is love, love someone else and certainly forgive them. I'm, I'm not going to forgive them. You have no idea. The last thing I want to do is be hospitable towards others. The last thing I want to do is serve someone else. And listen, I totally get that. I understand that. So how in the world do we do this? Well, listen, it's going to take God's strength and power. You can't pull this off. I can't pull this off without God's strength and power. But here's the kicker. What Peter is writing here is not like, hey, here's a good idea. Here's a suggestion. Here's an opinion. No, no. This is a command. But here's what we need to remember. And we go back to last week. We're visitors in this world just on a temporary visa. We are strangers. We are residents of heaven just passing through. So our problems are temporary. Our suffering is just for a season. And we can love and we can forgive and we can be hospitable and we can serve others when, when we have that perspective in mind, when, when that perspective is in, is in focus. But listen, 
There's a purpose in all of this, too, that we can't lose sight of. There's an end game, and, and it's not just rewards, although that's nice. It's not, it's not just so we'll feel better, all that, that's nice, too. No, no, no. The end game, and what Peter says here, and why he commands us to live this way, why God commands us to live this way in the midst of our, of our suffering, is in verse 11. It says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be Long, whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Why stay cool and calm and pray? Why do we love others with genuine intensity? Why do we forgive others who don't maybe deserve to be forgiven? Why do we show hospitality? Why serve one another? Because in everything, God gets the glory. Now think of how many conflicts would be resolved if God's glory were everyone's goal. Think for a minute, how many egos would be put into place if God's glory, not our own glory, were at stake here? Think of, think of how much more we could accomplish together if we all decided to work together for God's glory. You see, when God's glory is not the end game, our service can get tiring. Our love can get stale. Hospitality becomes a drudgery. Forgiveness becomes almost impossible. Our prayer life begins to wane. But when God's glory is in front of our minds and our thoughts and our motives, it is, it is so amazing how all of this just simply falls into place. Since he gets the glory, we can rest leaving all the results to him. It's all up to him. When he gets the glory, listen, you can love others, especially those, have heard, that, those that have hurt you. When he gets the glory, you can open up to your home to people who, who, who you would never think to eat dinner with because we realize that ultimately we're serving him. When, when he gets the glory, serving, it's not a pain, it's not a duty, it's actually a privilege. The benefits are endless when he gets the glory. Now listen, there's an urgency in Peter's message. Again, our time is short too short to waste our time on grudges, on sinking inward, spiraling inward. And what I want to encourage you to do more than anything, as I've had to do this past week as I was writing this message, sermon, talk, is you have to ask God to move these words off this page right here and into your heart. Lord, would you take these words right here and would you move them into my heart? And there's a great promise that I think goes with this in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust. The Bible says he will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. Isn't that a great promise? I mean, God, God's, he sees everything. He is not unjust. He will not forget what you've done. He'll not forget how you responded to this word. And he'll never, ever forget how you cared for other believers, especially when you were going through a tough time. Let's bow and pray together. Father, what a tough word this morning. Tough one to preach. And Lord, we, we know we can't live this out without you. Amazing words written by an amazing apostle, inspired by an amazing God. Impossible to live out without your strength and your power. But Lord, for your glory, as we walk through this week, 
may we stay calm, stay self-controlled, stay in prayer. May we love one another to the point of offering forgiveness maybe to someone who doesn't deserve it. May we be hospitable to one another. And Lord, may we, for your glory, serve one another with everything that we have because, Lord, time is too short. Help us not to waste a moment spiraling inward or going to the other extreme, losing ourselves. Your glory, Lord, is what we want to be all about. And everybody said together, amen. Thanks.